you know, there's a lot of things that are going on, and we've got a lot of extra announcements that we were going to share, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to try to get everything out, especially during the summertime because so many people are traveling. I know that there's several that are out on vacation, and, and just, it's just a busy time of the, uh, of the year, but we're also trying to get geared up for uh, what we want to relaunch and launch in the fall. So I just want to encourage you just to uh, uh, pay attention to the announcements. I know sometimes they become uh, just, you know, routine. You just want to blow through them. But, I mean, there's really a lot of really good things going on. And, and with that being said, I want to uh, thank everyone that uh, participated in the 24 hours of prayer. It's always a great time. We, we believe that prayer is, uh, is, is not an option. You know, prayer is something that is an absolute necessity for a Christian. And it's also a necessity for uh, our church. Church. And so we, we try to spend time monthly. We give the summer off, or we gave the summer off uh, uh, this time, and we just restarted one this past Saturday. And um, uh, so we're going to continue to do that. Also, I want to say uh, how much I appreciate all of our volunteers. Something that was on my heart this morning is, uh, you know, there's a lot more that goes in to making Sunday morning successful than just the, the, the singing and, and the preaching that, that, that we're used to every, every week. There's a lot of people that are doing a lot of things uh, every single week that without them, uh, our church wouldn't be what it is. And, you know, I'm thankful for those that are committed and are faithful to work in the nursery. I'm thankful for those who are involved in A to Z and children's church and youth ministry uh, greeting, you know, it would not be possible without your involvement for us to even exist as a church. You are the lifeblood of the church, and so I just wanted to say thank you. Let's give all of our volunteers a big hand. <clears throat> and like I said, if uh, we're going to have a baptism after service, so if you could stick around and uh, be a part of that, it's a special time where we'll be, uh, be doing the baptism. Pray for me. I'm going to be leaving tomorrow to go to Indiana. I'm going to be speaking at a conference on Tuesday, so uh, uh, be in prayer for me if you don't mind with that. So uh, with that being said, I want you to turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 8. And so we're right in the middle of the, uh, this sermon series called Hell's Best Secrets. And what we've been talking about, uh, first message, we talked about the importance of our motives. We talked about the purpose of God's law. We've talked about how God uses our conscience to convict us of sin. And we talked about uh, the difference between true repentance and, 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 and godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And then last week we talked about the five characteristics of a true believer. And we talked about the, the fruit that is shown. Jesus said, you shall know them by the fruit that they bear. And we talked about the fruit of repentance. We talked about the fruit of good work. We talked about the uh, fruit of, of thanksgiving. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And then we talked about the fruit of righteousness. And today we're going to talk about the four characteristics of a false convert. And, and, and the reason we're, we're talking about this and the purpose behind this series is because uh, in America we are not where we need to be on a, uh, an understanding of the Bible, a living out of the Bible, or even valuing uh, our, our relationship with God in, in, in general. And I, I started off by giving you some statistics about uh, the current state of the church. And 70% and of Americans consider themselves to be Christian. 70%. So that's a large amount of people that acknowledge or at least profess that they are born-again, Bible-believing, 
uh, Christians. But, but of that 70%, uh, less than 3% actually have a biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview is basically the way that you view life and the world and everything that goes on from a biblical basis. So, in other words, 97% of the people do not know how to uh, view life in general, uh, through, through uh, view values in general, view Christianity, through faith, through government, through, through all spheres of life, 97% do not have a biblical view of what's right and wrong. 66% of Americans do not believe in absolute truth. Now, now, that is an extremely dangerous thing for people to believe. In other words, they think that truth is relative, that truth can mean something to you, and it can mean something totally different to somebody else. Therefore, we can redefine marriage, redefine sexuality, redefine uh, what is a, a living person and what's not a living person. We can legalize abortion. We can, uh, you know, do all of these different things because truth is not absolute through the majority of people's eyes. Truth is something that's, that's relative, and so that's a very dangerous thing. And, uh, you know, over 90% over of people have a Bible. 72% have three or more. But 33%, only 33% actually believe the Bible is the literal word of God. So we have some messed up views. And, and, and it's not just that we have some messed up views. Those are not just distorted views. Those are destructive, uh, disturbing, uh, you know, uh, dangerous views that can ultimately lead us into a place where we are completely falling away from God. Now, you know, we can choose to believe what the Bible says or... We can choose to create a God in our own image. But the Bible says that you shall not have any gods before you, right? That's the first commandment. Now, none of us would bow down and worship a graving image. But we would definitely create a God in our mind to suit ourselves. And that's what happens almost every day. When you have no uh, lens in which you view absolute truth, right and wrong, what you do is you create a God in your image to suit yourself. And when you create a God to, uh, in your image, you also create a moral code to go along with that God. In other words, the way that you view God is, is a way that you will interpret morality in general. And, and so, some things you might, that the Bible clearly condemns that cause sin, that's called abomination, that, that is totally and, 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 and irrevocably uh, uh, against the truth of God's Word. The Bible says there would be a time when we would call evil good and good evil, and we're living in those days. So, it's important that we know the difference between true and false, fake and real, counterfeit and genuine, and that's really what this uh, series is about, so we can clearly see what the Bible says. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing more important than knowing without a shadow of a doubt that things are right between you and God. And if you cannot open up your Bible and go to book, chapter, and verse and show me why you believe that things are right between you and God... 
that concerns me because you're not going to get to heaven because I said you were going to heaven. You're not going to go to heaven because you came to an altar and prayed a prayer. You're not going to go to heaven because you were water baptized. You're not going to go to heaven because your name was written on a church membership roll book. You're not going to go to heaven because you were faithful to come to church every week. You're not going to go to heaven because you served or because you gave. None of those things, none of those things save us. But yet, over 50% of believers or professed believers, believe that good works are enough for a person to go to heaven. But if you do not know what the Bible says, uh, and not just know it, believe it, live it when it comes to salvation, how can you know that your eternal destiny is secure in God? You can't just take my words for it. You can't take somebody else's words for it. God has no grandchildren. In other words, either you have a relationship with God or you don't. There's a lot of people that think that they're going to be able to get in by a grandma's coattail or mom's uh, uh, dress. They're not going to get in that way. You're going to get in because you personally have a relationship with Jesus. And so that's the meaning and the, the truth behind what we're talking about in this series. So today we're going to talk about the four characteristics of a false convert. And we're going to read starting in Acts chapter 8 around verse 9. If you're there, say amen. Anybody there besides me? If you're there, say amen. Verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a very long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now notice verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed... And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which he done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as he had yet to fall upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that I, who anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Now notice, in verse 13, he believed, he was baptized, and he continued with Philip. He believed, he was obedient in baptism, and he continued. 
You know, by all outward indications, this man uh, possessed the, the outward appearance of somebody that has been through the religious, uh, 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 the religious ceremony or whatever you want to call that, ritual that, that people do to, in order to qualify for a believer. He believed, he was water baptized, and he continued. But we see his heart in this matter. Then all of a sudden, Peter calls him out and he says to him, your heart is not right in the sight of God. He he, he believed. He was water baptized. He continued. So obviously he was very religious. Verse 22. Repent. There's the word. Repent. Up to this point, there's no word of repentance from this man. He just believed. But even the demons, what? Believe and tremble. But he says to him, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you were poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Let's pray. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you help me to communicate your word clearly and simplistically with the anointing, with power, with clarity. And with effectiveness, Lord, I I bind every uh, demonic spirit that would try to hinder your word from going forth. I pray that you open up our hearts to understand how to receive and apply what we're hearing. If there's somebody here that falls into the category of a false convert or somebody here that is just completely lost without you, Lord, or if there's somebody here that possesses some of the characteristics of, of, uh, of this man, Simon, that, that, Lord, that you would convict us all of anything, Lord, that might be displeasing to you, that we may follow you more closely and truly know that things are right between you and I. So, Lord, I pray that you just bless this word, bless the hearers, And we just give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said. Four characteristics of a false convert. As we mentioned last week, there are several examples of people who profess to be believers uh, in God, profess to be born again, believing Christians who were in reality, they were, they were false converts. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 15, verse number 8, Jesus says that there would be a group of people that would draw near to me with their lips, they would honor me with their mouth, but their hearts were far from me, and in vain they do worship me. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said these people would have a form of godliness. They would be very religious. They would understand the, 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 the practices that, that, that Christians would go through. He said they would have a form of godliness, but they would deny the power. The Bible says in the book of Titus chapter 1 verse 16 that these people would profess to know God, but in their works deny him. In other words, they would say one thing, but their lifestyle would not back up what they say that they believe. So we, we see here that, that there's multiple, multiple uh, accounts in Scripture of people who claim to be Christians, but in reality they were false converts. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, it says, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, but yet has not been washed from their filthiness. And so we see that there's account after account after account of people that claim to be true, but in reality they 
were fake. They were disingenuine. They were not real. They were counterfeit. They, 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 they professed something, but they did not possess something. They, they, they had a form of godliness. They were very, very religious, but in reality, they had no relationship with Jesus Christ whatsoever. And it concerns me that we have filled our churches full of backsliders, full of lukewarm Christians, full of people who don't take their relationship with God seriously, who don't take the Bible seriously, who don't take prayer seriously, they don't take the Christian disciplines seriously, they don't take heaven seriously, they don't take hell seriously, they don't take anything seriously. Most people, the majority of the people in our churches today, the truth is their least commitment is what they do with their commitment with God on, on a weekly or a daily basis. The truth is, if we pursued God like we pursued making money, we would be radically different as individuals and we would be radically different as the church. And I'm afraid that we have pursued the, the things that are less important because there's some things in life that are more important than money. There's some things in life that money cannot buy. But if we pursued God like we pursued making money, we would live totally and completely different. If we believed heaven was real, if we believed hell was real, and people literally go there forever, we would radically change the way that we live our lives. So there's a difference between what's true and what's false. And so what we're going to do today is that we're going to look at the example of a man by the name of Simon who just so happens to be the first convert that we, or false convert that we read about in the early church. Now again, I believe that it's important for us to note, and I pointed this out while we were reading our text, it's important for us to note that Simon had participated in all of the normal religious formalities that we would assume that most unsaved, unbelieving people would participate in in terms of hearing the gospel and also responding. In other words, that we would assume that this man had done the right thing the right way with the right heart, and there's no indication of why we should believe otherwise. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 13, it says, Then Simon himself also believed. Now, that's important. A lot of people you know, believe in God. A lot of people believe in Jesus Christ. But their belief is not translated into obedience to what they believe. The word believe and obey can be interchanged. The truth is you only believe that which you obey. Everything else is just religious talk. When you read the Bible as if the commands that we're given are nothing more than an option for us to consider rather than a, a, a duty that we are to uh, commit ourselves to, then we're really missing out and we really have the wrong heart in terms of, of what it means to be a Christian. But this man, Simon, he believed, he was baptized, and he continued with Philip. And so outwardly there'd be no reason for us to consider that Simon wasn't a true convert. He fits all the qualifications of a true believer. He believed. In other words, he came to church and, you know, he heard the gospel 
And, and he appropriately responded, and I, I don't know that he came to an altar and repeated the sinner's prayer or not, but it says he believed. What did he believe? He believed what Philip preached. What did Philip preach? The things concerning the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. So he believed, he mentally acknowledged what that Philip was preaching, and he not just mentally acknowledged what Philip was, Philip was preaching, he agreed with it. He said, yes, this man is he's speaking the truth. Then he followed up what he believed with uh, what we call water baptism. The Bible says, after Simon himself had believed and was water baptized, which again, once you get saved, the next step that follows after salvation is what? Water baptism. You get water baptized. And he didn't just stop there. He believed. He was baptized. But the Bible says, and he continued. In other words, he showed up at church every Sunday just like we do. And, and so he continued with Philip. So, so he possessed all the outward qualifications of what we would look at if we were to look at an individual and say, you know what, that person's a Christian. They go to church. You know, something that disturbs me, I was watching the news the other day. And there was a lady who uh, her and her husband had killed her mother, murdered her mother, okay? In our area, in this region, not specifically in Clay County, but in the eastern part of the region. And the, the news went in to make a, um, uh, 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 an interview with them and ask her if she wanted to be interviewed, and she said yes. When the interview started, she was already talking. You know what I heard come out of her mouth? She said, I didn't have anything to do with this. You know, I, I'm a Christian. I've been saved. You know what? I go to church. And the woman just, again, I know that you are innocent until proven guilty, but by all indications up to this point, she was definitely involved because she was taking up for her husband and saying that what he did was actually self-defense, but she didn't have anything to do with it. And I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, does this woman really believe that? I mean, there's a lot of people that would assume that they are right with God that things are okay between them and God, but in reality, they, they've never even met Jesus. They, they don't know who, who he is. And so, here we are, anyways, getting back on the, on the message. I see that there's four characteristics of a false convert. And this is what I love about the Bible. You know, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It says, everything in the Bible was written for our instruction, correction, and equipping that the man of God would be properly equipped for every good work. So everything we read in here has been divinely inspired by God, okay? And so the story that we just read, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24, it was put in here for a reason. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record these words so that we would be able to see the characteristics of somebody that is a false convert. And there's four things I see in here, if you've got your outline with you, that I want to point out that I see in the life of Simon, who is the first false convert that we read about in the New Testament. Now, he's not the only one. Jesus warned us about false prophets, right? The Bible talks about false apostles. It also talks about false brethren. So this is not a new concept. 
This is not something new or first time we've ever heard any of this stuff. The Bible talks about, you know, counterfeit and the false all the time. Anything that God does, Satan attempts to create a counterfeit that appears to be the real thing, but in reality, it is deception. So it's important for us to understand and know what is true and what is false. Now, when we talk about the last days, when we talk about the return of Jesus, I would say the majority of us, if not all of us, would agree that we're living in the last days, that the Lord is, is going to return very, very soon. And when the disciples asked Jesus what would be the sign of his coming, most of us would immediately uh, quote these words. We would say something like, well, there'd be wars and rumors of wars. There would be earthquakes and famine and pestilences in and, and, and diverse places. We would try to uh, think about and discover who the Antichrist is, right? Who the false prophet is. We're reading end-time books. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm not looking for the, the Antichrist. I'm looking for the Christ, and I kind of figure that if I am able to know the real thing good enough, then I would be able to identify a counterfeit at any moment. You know, you know when the FBI, the government, when, when they are studying uh, uh, counterfeit money that's being produced, they actually never study the counterfeit. They only study the real because they want to know the real good enough that they're able to identify a counterfeit no matter how small the detail really is. I mean, they know every hair that is sticking out of George Washington's wig, okay? They know the real thing, and that's what I believe about the end times. I feel like if I know the real Jesus close enough the events of the end times will just take care of themselves because I'm not looking for an event. I'm not looking for signs and wonders. I'm not looking for any of these things, though, though they are legitimate. I'm looking for Jesus who is the author and the finisher of my faith. So it's important for us to know the difference between the true and the fake. So the first characteristic that I see here where Simon erred in the faith, number one is, he had a wrong view of self. Simon had a wrong view of self. And the first thing that I see in his life is that Simon was a very prideful man. Now look what the Bible says here in Acts chapter 8 verse 9. This is how we know that he was prideful. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. Now here's the point claiming to be someone great. So we know that, that this man, Simon, was a very influential man. And this is not what others said of Simon. This is what Simon said of himself. He claimed to be somebody great. And he was in the eyes of those that lived in Samaria at this particular time. He was like a megastar in the world of sorcery and magic. He, he was somebody that was a very powerful and influential person. You know, he would be a, a new age guru in, in our day. This is who Simon was. He, he claimed to be somebody that was great. He claimed himself to be somebody that was great. But he was really, in reality, a very, very prideful man. Now, pride has kept many a man and a woman from coming and giving their life to Jesus. Let me say that again. Pride 
has kept many a man and a woman from coming and giving their life to Jesus. Pride is dangerous. Pride is deadly. Pride is destructive. Pride turns angels into demons. Pride is the characteristic that most makes us like the devil himself. Pride was the source of the original sin. Pride was the source uh, of the original fall. Pride comes before a fall. Pride is a thief. Pride is a robber. Pride robs the heart and keeps the heart from being able to experience genuine brokenness and repentance and humility that is absolutely necessary for somebody to get saved. When you care more about what other people think than what God thinks, you have a pride issue. When you're more self-focused and self-conscious than you are God-focused and God-conscious, you have a pride issue. You actually, you have eye problems. The Bible talks about some of the characteristics that Lucifer possessed before he fell from heaven. And this is what he said. He said, I, 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 I will ascend into the heavens. I will be like the Most High. I will rule and reign over the earth. He had eye problems. He's self-centered. He's self-focused. He got puffed up in himself. And I've seen this time after time after time that when people come and, and, and they experience salvation, they, they, they're genuinely broken. They're grateful for their sins to be forgiven. The sky is bluer. The grass is greener. But they come to church for a little while. They're able to memorize some scriptures. They're able to share some things from the Bible. And the next thing they know, they feel like they're qualified to tell everybody else how they should be living their life. Pride. It's, it's a natural passion within us. It's very easy for us to become prideful and arrogant, but, but pride is dangerous. Pride is, is deadly. And so this man was a very prideful man. He claimed to be somebody that's great. Now, nowhere in what we read concerning this text do we see Simon repented, Nowhere did we read in this text where Simon was convicted of any of his sins. Nowhere in this text do we see that, that Simon uh, uh, was, was broken and repentant over his involvement in witchcraft and the occult. All it says is that Simon believed. It says that he believed. There's no repentance There's no forsaking of sin. There's no godly sorrow. There's no conscience of his own sinfulness, his own wretchedness. He don't know what he needs to be saved from. He's just believing. He he believes. But even the demons believe and they tremble. You know, the demons, they mentally acknowledge. They don't just mentally acknowledge. They have faith in who Jesus really is. They have the right acknowledgement of proper doctrine concerning Jesus. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe Jesus is sinless. They believe Jesus is God in the flesh. They believe that Jesus is coming back. They believe that Jesus is going to eternally judge them forever. And what they believe about him lines up doctrinally with everything that we should believe about Jesus. 
Not only do what they believe doctrinally about Jesus is it accurate, what they believe doctrinally about Jesus moves them emotionally. They are moved emotionally by what they believe about Jesus and what are they moved by, what emotion manifests in them? Fear. They believe accurately and they tremble accurately. Now let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a demon to be saved? No. I wonder how many people... I wonder how many people are banking their eternal destiny because they believe doctrinally all the right things about Jesus, but their heart's not right with God. I wonder how many people are banking their eternal destiny because what they believe about Jesus moved them so emotionally they came to an altar and cried but never changed. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. So it's so much more than just simply acknowledging correct doctrine. It's so much more than being moved emotionally by what you believe. It requires change. And nowhere in the text that we read... Does it say that this man repented? Nowhere does it say that this man forsook the occult in witchcraft. Nowhere in this text does it say that this man was sorrowful for his sins. It simply said that he believed. He had a wrong view of self. He thought that he was just a pretty good guy. And they believe that good old boys go to heaven. You know, all dogs go to heaven, right? So what you believe is important. But if what you believe hasn't changed your heart, you're still lost. But he had a wrong view of self. Pride's destructive. Pride comes before a fall. Listen to what it says here in Psalms 1, uh, 10 verse 4. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not at all in his thoughts. You don't hear anything about praising Jesus coming out of Simon's mouth, do you? You don't see him thankful for his sins being forgiven. You have no mention of anything that he says about God till later on. And when we find out what he says about God and his true heart behind that, we find out that his heart's not right. He doesn't seek after God at all. The Bible says in James 4 verse 6, God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. So we see pride is destructive. It comes before a fall. Pride will cut you off from grace. It'll cut you off from forgiveness. It'll cut you off from salvation. Pride will keep you out of heaven. And pride will send you straight to hell. I know this old timey preaching. And I know it's not popular in our day. But let me tell you something. When you stand before God, you're going to know the difference between right and wrong, true and false. You'll appreciate it then. Simon had a wrong view of self. Here's the second thing. Second thing is, is this. Simon had a wrong view of salvation. Verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed 
And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which he'd done. In other words, Simon was impressed by the power that Philip operated in. Kind of like a lot of church folk, that good old power. Hallelujah. Now, I believe in the power of God. So did Simon. And he ain't saved. If you seek after power and not after relationship, your heart is not right with God. If all you want is power, if all you want is impressed, if all you want is an emotional experience, if all you want to do is go through the motion, if all you want is to be religious, you can have all of that and split hell wide open. Because there's more to God than just his power and his power is not a good enough reason to say you follow him. Simon was impressed by the power Philip operated. So, we see the motive here, right? His motive for believing, his motive for being baptized, his motive for continuing was what? So he could learn how to operate in the power Philip operated in. Because listen, we need not forget, this man was a megastar in the world of sorcery and witchcraft. This man, the Bible said in Acts chapter 8 verse 10, it says that he's referred to, the people referred to him as the great power of God. You know who else is referred to as the great power of God? Jesus. So he wasn't looking to follow Jesus. What was his motive for following? It wasn't because he loved Jesus, was it? It wasn't because, you know, he was thankful that his sins were forgiven. He was following Philip because he wanted to learn how to operate in this power that he was so impressed by. He could just add it to his witchcraft arsenal. Because he already performed many things, the Bible says, and he astonished people. But the problem was the gospel had come through Philip and people believed and so they were forsaking Simon and it was affecting his influence in Samaria. So he thought, you know what, I better learn how to do this stuff. I'm preaching better than you're amening. I could have the best of both worlds. I could still have one, one foot in the world and in witchcraft and in the occult, and I can have one foot in the church and claim to be a Christian. I can be committed to both. I can have two different lifestyles. I can live one way inside the church, another way outside of the church, blend it together. People will never know the difference. These people are naive. So you better know the difference between right and wrong, true and false, and know how to discern between the two. His motive for believing... Now throw that next slide up for me. Look. This is the way that Simon viewed salvation. His 
motive for believing was wrong. He saw salvation as something that was external and not internal. It was something that he could fake it till he make it. It's something that he could outwardly appear righteous, and that's what Jesus said of the Pharisees. They outwardly appear righteous before men, but inwardly they're full of sin and hypocrisy. Sound like a lot of church folk, don't it? He, 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 he viewed salvation as something that was external, not internal. His motive for believing, being baptized, and following was, that's just what you do. I've seen it done before. This is a formality. He said, I, I view salvation as nothing more than a religious ritual or a superficial ceremony that other people participated in. So since people come to the altar and they pray, I'll go to the altar and pray. Because they say, repeat this prayer, they repeat this prayer. Because people get water baptized, he'll get water baptized. He said, this is just what you do. I've seen it done. And maybe if I do that, then maybe I can blend in. And that's what a lot of people are doing today inside the church. They're, they're just blending in. So, you know, the, basically, the, it's, it's the same. Before we judge him, I guess, before we judge him too much, let's consider just how much we are like him. We still do the same thing that he was doing in eastern Kentucky. It's the same, except here's the way it is for us. We want Jesus. We want heaven. We want salvation. We want the church. We want all the good things the Bible promises, except we want it for our benefit, and we want it on our terms. We'll take all the good stuff as long as it doesn't create an inconvenience for us in our lives. We'll take everything that's in the Bible as long as it doesn't demand us to change the way we live. Come on now. We'll take all this stuff and we'll just kind of, you know, incrementally implement it into our lives so that we can feel good about ourselves as if Jesus died on the cross so we can feel good about ourselves. We want the life enhancement gospel that says, you know what, come to Jesus and you know what, you get a car and you get a house and you get all these good things. But Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. And he who loses it for my sake, the same shall save it. And then he says these terribly, terribly terrifying words. Anyone that desires to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone who does not deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, cannot be my disciple. That's, that's terrible, isn't it? Listen, Jesus didn't come to make your life better. He come to wreck your life and give you a brand new one. And until we reach that moment and experience that moment where he wrecks us and rips us apart to the point that we surrender everything of ourselves to him, including our sin, 
we're never going to be changed. That's the dangerous thing about the gospel because he says that to all of us. So he had a wrong view of self. He had a wrong view of salvation. Here's the third thing. He had a wrong view of the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 and 19. And when Simon saw that through the laying on hands of the apostles the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone who I lay hands on, they might receive the Holy Spirit. So at this point, Simon's true heart about why he's believing, why he's baptized, and why he's continuing comes to the surface. We see really what is, what is in his heart. And so the apostle Peter calls him out on it. He doesn't question his salvation. He said, you're a fake. You're a phony. You're a counterfeit. Imagine if I got up and did that. People get upset at me because I say, make your calling an election sure, which is a scripture in the Bible. People get offended with me because I say, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. He doesn't say that. Phil, or he didn't say that to Simon. Peter said, you, my friend, your heart is not right with God. He clearly says, you're lost. That's, that's, I didn't write that. That's what Peter said. Because he was able to see what's really in his heart. See, I've been putting these nice pointed messages together. Like, here's the fruit of good works and the fruit of repentance and, you know packaging it all nicely and just kind of presenting it before you like don't get mad at me it's a good message preacher I guarantee nobody told Peter that day man that was a good message when you called that man out <laughs> but that's the way that he I'm not saying that should be the way you always handle it but better you to do that than when you stand before God and God say that. So his heart was exposed. He, he sees his heart. And then Peter says this to me. He says, your money perish with you because you thought you could purchase the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Philip didn't see it at first, but Peter saw it immediately and confronted Simon. Again, Simon was proud. He was self-centered. It was all about him. I, I love this. He had a very high view of himself, but a very low view of God. So he had a wrong view of, of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if everything has to be on your terms, if being a Christian, serving God, keeping your commitments, being faithful to the Word is an inconvenience to you, then you don't need a Savior, you need a servant. That's what most people in the church want. They don't want a Savior, they want servant. Remember when your heart was so passionate for God that you never did anything out of obligation or hardship, you did it because you were so in love with Jesus. Remember 
when it didn't matter who showed up, it was a privilege just to do anything for God. Remember when prayer wasn't so burdensome and the Bible wasn't so difficult and coming to church was a joy. Remember when your heart used to be like that? It's very easy for us to become just like Simon as we distance ourselves away from the cross. See, the farther away from the cross you get, the more religious you become. That's why Jesus said you need to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. There should be a daily denying of self. There should be a daily taking up your cross. There should be a daily following him. And it shouldn't be out of obligation. It just should be out of a heart that's overflowing with love for him. But one of the things that the Bible talks about make the last days dangerous is that in the last days there shall be perilous times. And it lists all these bad things that people will be haters of God and inventors of evil and all this stuff. The very first thing in that same list, it says this, men shall be lovers of themselves. The truth is, most of us love ourselves more than we love God. But it says this, we're made overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And they hated their lives even unto death. If you love your life now, you'll hate your life then. There's some things that we need to crucify in our life. But we're so far away from the cross, we don't even consider it. But we believe. I'm about to wrap it up. Here's the last thing. They had come music. He had a wrong view of self. He had a wrong view of salvation. He had a wrong view of the Holy Spirit. And he had a wrong view of sin. Peter says to him, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray if perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Basically, Peter was saying, I don't care what you say you believe, Simon. I don't care that you have been water baptized. And I don't even care that you go to Philip's church. You need to repent. Because your heart is not right with God. Because here's the truth. There's, there's no forgiveness without repentance. Let me say that clearly. There's no forgiveness without repentance. There's no forgiveness without repentance. You can't bypass the first word of the gospel. Do you know what the first word of the gospel is? Repent. You know what the second word of the gospel is? Believe. You can't believe until you first repent. How do I know that's true? Because that's exactly what Simon did. He believed, but nowhere does it say he repented. So Peter says to Simon, repent. Because repentance is a prerequisite for being saved. He said, Simon... 
I see you for what you really are. Kind of like what Forrest is saying. He said before he came up, he said, God is searching our hearts. And he's saying, this is in there. And we may not like it, and we may be confronted with it, but in reality, that's the best thing that can happen. Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall. But that's not true. Before the truth sets you free, it makes you miserable first. You know, every word of the gospel is good, even if it makes you squirm. You know it? Every word of it is good. Every word of it is good, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, even if it confronts our selfishness. And, and one of my jobs as pastor is to confront your selfishness. And I'm not saying that in a condemning way, but the truth is it's very easy for us to become selfish. It's very easy for us to put things before our relationship with God. But God doesn't mind that we have things as long as things don't have us. It's a matter of priority. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things shall be added unto you. A lot of us is, we're doing the things that we want to do first and then we just tag God on at the end. Hashtag God. Had a great time today shopping on Sunday. Hashtag Jesus is good. Got a brand new dress today. Hashtag thank you, Jesus. Don't tithe. <laughs> I have a little fun there. You've read those before, haven't you? God's good. Say yes to the dress. But again, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy your, 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 your you know, enjoy life. I'm just saying make sure in all that you're doing that God is always first. And the only way, here's the thing. I know our human nature is like this. We assume that God's first, but we don't evaluate whether God's first. We, we don't have a, a, a measuring tool that shows that, okay, God's first in, in my life. We just assume it. And so we think attending church trumps everything else. Because there's a lot of nine to five Christians that they come to church on Sunday and they, they, they put their, you know, their, their card in and they check in and they check out and they put a check mark beside their name saying, done good this week. God's good. Jesus didn't come to be part of your life. He came to give all of your life. Stand with me. Simon had a wrong view of self. He had a wrong view of salvation. He had a wrong view of the Holy Spirit. He had a wrong view of sin. He was prideful. He was religious. And he was self-centered. Now, Maybe you're here, and your pride is not nearly as extreme as Simon's. But I can promise you this much. 
If there's even just a little bit of pride in there, it's absolutely just as destructive. And pride destroys everything in our life. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with others. It, it destroys any kind of happiness or contentment. And you know what? Being prideful doesn't mean that you, that you, you simply think of others less. Being prideful just simply means that you think of yourself more. It means we're selfish. It means that we're self-centered, we're self-focused, we're self-absorbed. Have you ever noticed that people like to talk about themselves? What I like and what I, I want, they come to church and they say, you know what, I like this and I like that and I don't like this and I don't like that. As if church is about them. Jesus, he's got this funny idea that he, he thinks it's about him. And I believe in having good children's church and nursery and, and, and youth and Sunday morning services, but I don't do it to please people. If you're a people pleaser, that's a form of pride. Being judgmental is one of the highest forms of pride. It's very easy to look down at people that have, have had a rough lot in life. It's come from, you know, from, 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 from the gutters. that have come out of prostitution and addiction and corruption and all that stuff. And, and because we've not been down that path, we all of a sudden think that we're better than others. It's so, I mean, it's just so easy. And for us to assume that we have no pride is to be prideful. I tell people like this, better to assume that you have some pride and find out you don't than assume that you don't and find out you do. But pride will destroy everything in our lives. Is pride keeping you from giving your life to Jesus? wholeheartedly is pride keeping you from pursuing Jesus more intimately more deeply more seriously it's an easy thing to do you know maybe You've been in church your whole life. You've believed. You've been baptized. And outwardly, you meet all the qualifications of a true believer, but you can't point to a time in your life when your life was really changed. Where you stop living for yourself. When Jesus was everything in your life and nothing else really mattered. Maybe you, you're here, you've been saved, you know you're saved, but God's showing, you know what, there's some things that are not right in your heart. Maybe you've got some issues that are hidden underneath the surface, but outwardly you're like Simon. You, you, you appear to have it all together, but inwardly some things are not right. Maybe you've got some relationships strained in your life and you're not able to find enough humility 
to make things right with that person. I mean, I wonder how many relationships could have been salvaged and saved and restored if people were able to humble themselves enough to simply say, I'm wrong, or I'm sorry, or I apologize. You know, if this was a perfect world, if people were perfect, then there'd be no need for apology. But some people would rather win an argument and lose a relationship. Better to lose your pride over the person that you love than lose the person you love over the issue of your pride. So maybe you're here, you're saved, but you have a whole lot more in common with Simon than you thought. And God's saying, I'm confronting that in you. But you, I'm going to pray. I'm going to open up this altar, give an opportunity to pray. And if the Lord puts it on your heart to come, don't allow your pride to keep you where you are. And don't allow your pride to cause you to worry about what other people think. Because who cares? The only opinion that matters is the things that God thinks. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Simon. Thank you that you know us inside and out. That, Lord, we can't hide from you and we can't fake it around you. You know who we really are on the inside. And, Lord, there's people here this morning, they have a, they have a desire to change, but their pride is holding them back and they won't allow themselves to be humble enough to admit that something is not right in their heart. There's those that, that are here that they're not right with God that think that they are, but, but Lord, today you've come to confront that. And Lord, if they're here, I pray, God, that you minister to them salvation and lead them to the place where the cross is clearly before them, that they may surrender everything to you. But Lord, I pray that you draw us near to the cross. And let the cross drive out of us every ounce of pride and ego and self-centeredness. Help us to crucify that self-centeredness to the point, God, where, where we're broken before you. We need a Savior, not a servant. But, Lord, you're more than a Savior. You're a Redeemer. You're a Healer. You're a Deliverer. So, Father, I pray right now that you minister to your people as they sing and as they play. This altar's open. If you need to come, I'll encourage you to come.